Welcome to Success in Brief with your host, Roseanne Felicello. In every episode, we feature successful women attorneys and other business professionals to reflect on what career advice would you give your younger self. We hope to provide insights and inspiration toward your professional success. You can find this show at www.felicellolaw.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Now, here's the host of Success in Brief, Roseanne Felicello. Hello, my name is Roseanne Felicello, and this is Success in Brief. I'm thrilled today to welcome Amy Serino to the podcast. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Roseanne. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well, and I'm so thrilled to uh, finally be able to reconnect with you. It's been, I think, a few decades since we've been. A couple decades, yes. Very, thank you very much for having me. Amy is an employment attorney and workplace investigator, which we'll find out more about, uh, in the greater Boston area. And Amy and I met at Ropes and Gray many years ago. Um, <laughs> we both started well, we both started our law practice. Yeah. Uh, after stints as a law clerk on the First Circuit and in several smaller firms, uh, Amy has recently started her own law practice, which we'll also find out about today. Um, so I'm excited to introduce you to Amy and for her to share her story of success. Amy, again, thanks for being here. Thank you. So what was your path to becoming an attorney? Did you always know that's what you wanted to, to be? Uh, I think I did on some level. Um, I did. My father was an attorney and his brother and his father. So my grandfather um, were also attorneys in Massachusetts. And so I sort of grew up in one of the, you know, some people are, there are no attorney families or some attorney families. I was definitely in an attorney family. And um, I also grew up outside of the Washington, D.C. area. So it, it's v- super common for people to be attorneys, whether or not they're practicing like in a traditional law firm setting or they're working for a government agency. So attorneys were everywhere uh, for me growing up. That That's interesting that you point that out. Yeah, I didn't grow up with any attorneys in my family. <laughs> yeah. I think it, they, they're all the two paths. Either you're surrounded by them or you have yeah. no experience. And, it, and I was really encouraged to, to, to pursue it by my father, um, who thought it was a great background. I, I love to write. And he said, that's fine. You, you can love to write, but you should try and go into law school. It will prepare you for writing. It will prepare you for any other kind of career, you know, business, uh, real estate, uh, politics, any of those things. And have you found that to be true? Yeah. I mean, I think that the skills that you get from law school and the practice of law are analytical skills that transfer into other things. Uh, and principally, my career has been uh, has been the law. But I think that the kind of the, the skills that I took away are do do extend into to other work as well. I think that's definitely true. And I think that the analytical skills that it gives you really help you just navigate the modern world. That's right. Yes. So having your dad and your uncle and your grandfather um, that must all in the law field must have been uh, amazing for you in order to have those resources. Did you find that you turned to them often as you were navigating your career path? Well, yes. I mean, definitely my father was a big influence uh, early in my career. Um, he's, he's, he's passed, but um, had been a great champion of going to law school and encouraging it. Uh, my, my uncle to some degree as well. And I didn't, you know, I did only knew my grandfather as a, as a little child, but, um, you know, sort of grew up in the shadow of them and the respect they gave to the profession. Um, so it was something that I always knew was, um, you know, treated with respect and was something to aspire to. 
So you mentioned that you grew up in um, the D.C. area. I saw that you actually went to law school in D.C., uh, George Washington. So what brought you to the Boston area? Uh, It was someplace I'd always wanted to live. My both of my parents are from New England. And so we'd spent a good deal of time in the Boston area growing up all of the holidays and so forth and in Boston with family. So it was actually a reconnecting to family to move to to Boston um, because our my my child had been shaped by my father starting out at the Department of Justice and other working at other government agencies growing up. So that had been the we had been sort of transplanted to D.C. It was a homecoming to come to Boston. That sounds wonderful. I, I knew that I wanted to go to Boston for college um, with for no reason, really. I mean, I, had, <laughs> I think I read about it in books and had seen it. I hadn't ever visited there until I started looking at colleges. But I just got it something in my head that Boston yeah. was you know, where I wanted to go to school. And it it's was charming, like, isn't it? It's very charming. <laughs> the whole time there, I was in Boston for about... 11 years, actually, mm-hmm. undergrad, law school, and starting out at, at Rove's, um, you know, uh, practicing for several years before returning to the New York area. But yeah, yeah I mean, there, it's a, it is a great town. Yeah, it definitely is. So what, um, you start out at Rove's, we, we mentioned. So what yep. were the uh, factors that drove you to make the decision to go to Rove's as your initial um, foray into law practice? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a it's a well-known and well-respected firm and well-resourced. And really, I felt like I wasn't I couldn't I wouldn't be shutting any doors to, to go to ropes. It could never, never hurt to have a big law experience. Um, and obviously, there's it's always the draw of, of um, the, the money that's associated with a big law practice. But really, I was interested in the training and I felt like it was a, a place that would invest in new lawyers um, and, and had the capacity to do that. And it, it, it proved to be true. It really was an incredible experience. Um, and when I started there, I was pretty exclusively working in, on um, complex commercial litigation. And it was a great experience. You were there during the time when they were working on the World Trade Center gearing up for trial, right? The Yeah, just, I mean, I was, it, I did not. No, I did not. Um, I did do insurance type work at some points during my time there, but I was not heavily involved in that. No. So the employment law, did you have any... Um, experience with that at ropes or was that something that came out later a little bit but it was more there and there were people who would straddle litigation and employment law when i was there i i didn't i i had some some work that intersected with employment and i always really wanted to do more employment law so that was something that i was looking for for the future to see how i could i could work that more into my practice and that was something i was ultimately able to do that's great after ropes though you didn't go right into employment law you went to the clerk for the first circuit right that's right that sounds yeah. like an amazing experience. Um, how did it that? Was, it was. How did it you- was amazing. <laughs> I was thinking about. Sorry, no. I was thinking about um, trying something new and different, and I had a great opportunity fall into my lap in some ways. Um, that my judge, who I went to clerk for, had just been appointed uh, and was needing clerks immediately. So, unlike many clerkships, and especially federal clerkships, which are can be, you know, as you know, uh, sort of. Um, these roles can be filled years in advance. This was something that was almost like just walking into a job interview, you know, to, to work immediately. And so uh, I worked for two years for my judge in the First Circuit, um, Judge Howard, Jeffrey Howard. And it was an it was an incredible experience. And I think and there were a lot more litigators and other attorneys who were taking a detour to clerk who, you know, typically the, tr- the traditional trajectory is that you go to law school, you clerk, and then you go start at a firm um, for those who go into private practice. And 
I was finding a lot more colleagues were doing what I was doing and they were practicing for a little bit, going to a clerkship and then deciding what next. And I have to think that I, I definitely appreciated seeing behind the scenes in a way that I don't know if I would have as, as somebody who came straight from, from law school. It was really an incredible experience to, to see what was happening in the background and really just get a chance to be a student of the law again. It seems fascinating to be able to be in that role. Um, uh, you know, after having practiced also for a few years, you really have a different perspective. Um, I think of the cases coming in and and how the process, how the sausage is made in the background. <laughs> That's right, absolutely. When you went to the clerkship, did you expect that you would return to big law, or did you know going in that you thought you'd want a different path um, after the clerkship? I thought that I, I knew that I would probably want a, a different path. And in fact, I, it was it was cute. I was even asked if I would like to come back to Ropes. They said they'd give me a clerkship bonus if I could commit then that I'd come back. And I said, no, I really I really have to try other things. So I didn't I didn't want to accept that. And, um, you know, without without having in my heart being in it to return. So I uh, certainly left an unhappy terms from Ropes, but was wanting to try something new and different. And that the years of, of clerking gave me a chance to sort of keep an eye on what was going on in the Boston legal market and, and find something else. And when you were clerking, uh, were you exposed to lots of different um, types of law? Yeah, the whole gamut. And particularly for somebody who'd been in private practice um, doing, ex- you know, exclusive, exclusively civil litigation, I didn't have, I didn't touch any criminal cases and it was very interesting to see criminal appeals. So how did you make the decision um, what you would do after your clerkship? You know, where did you yep. decide to go? I found a really exciting opportunity for myself. Uh, I worked at a medium size. So I'd gone from Ropes, which was hundreds of lawyers, to a more of a medium sized firm, which is between 50 and 100 lawyers during my time there with Prince Lobel in Boston. And there I was able to continue doing commercial litigation, but also blend in employment law and blend in uh, a very um, important interest of mine, which was media law. So I was able to do pre-publication review of print, typically um, journalism, before I went to press to review for libel and so forth. And that had always, and grad, I was a journalism major. And I'd always had an interest in that. Um, that had that was how my you know interest in writing had sort of manifested in my, my educational background. It was an incredibly exciting thing to do. And it was, in, you know, I've had a couple of dream jobs and that was one of them. So I've, I've been happy to, I've been fortunate that, you know, that it's not just stayed one thing. Um, and things have evolved and what I've been looking for has changed over time and with my life um, and demands. And that was a dream job, being able to do those three types of law together and definitely strengthen my interest in, and expertise in employment law during that time. That's fascinating. The, the libel um, yeah. sounds very interesting. Yeah. And it has practical applications in what I do today. So it's, you know, you really have to be able to stand behind everything that you write and pull it apart and scrutinize it if it were to go to trial. And so um, that's, it was a skill that I was able to develop and continue to rely upon today. So you had this dream job and then at some yep. point decided to move elsewhere, that that was not longer yeah. a job. So where did you, where'd you go next and how did you make that decision? Yeah, um, and I think this is something you've mentioned before on a prior podcast. I, I'll unapologetically say that part of my decision was life needing to make changes that were that were consistent with my, what my lifestyle was, which is that I was I had two kids that I was raising. And I found a job that was at a now I've gone now my 50 to 100 attorney firm to a four person firm um, locally. Um, so no commute. So in an, in an office, but no commute and um, doing the same caliber of work 
that I'd been doing, basically same, the same level of employment litigation and employment counseling in Boston, but on a small, much smaller scale and without the commute. So it was a fantastic, you know, next step for me. And it, it spanned, you know, having, it spanned the period where my kids were uh, toddlers to now teenagers. I, I mean, I think it's critical that, you know, you're able to use your law degree to make the life that you want at that moment that you want it. Yes. You know? It may not be the same life the whole, the whole way through. It won't be the same life. It, it won't be. You know, we go through uh, transitions in life and periods of life and your kids won't always be in diapers and they won't <laughs> you know, hold them you yes. know, for hours on end. So yeah. you need to make it work for you. Yeah, absolutely. I actually think that a law degree is unique in that way and that it really um, does offer that if you if you allow yourself to sort of think outside the box about what your career looks like. I agree. I agree. And I, I think it, it can be a mistake to, to have a set thing in mind that this is what my dream is. And to feel that since you've told people this or that you've, you know, set your life up this way that you, it, it, you have to follow through with it regard, you know, because you wanted it before that you have to want it now things change over time. And I think that's, that's real life and you'll be happier if you're able to be flexible. I think that's definitely true. I feel like that's I'm one of those. Um, there used to be signs on the New York subway advertising, you know, um, I think it was uh, like theories of life or something, you know, okay. how to be happy. And one of their, their statements of how to be happy is, you know, one, be flexible about what makes you happy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, if absolutely. you can Adapt. allow yourself to um, to find that satisfaction in different ways. I think it, it really does uh, make life a little bit more enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the four-person law firm sounds like it was great. Um, it was wonderful. Is that, is that it was your... all women, too. So, oh, so, perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you all understood the sort of what you were dealing with in terms of the children and needing to leave and, you know, yeah. for yeah. soccer practice or, or whatever. That's right. Is that your the job you had immediately before starting your practice? That's that's where I came from. Yes, before okay. I started this firm. So, what made you decide that you wanted to go from four to to one to one? I felt like I was ready for it, um, and I wanted to sort of have more uh, freedom to sort of explore what I where I wanted to focus my time. And this format of being my own firm has left me you know, more flexibility, I think, to even explore myself and my career, you know, independent of being an employee or, a you know, person working at a firm. Um, and, you know, has, I've been able to be more open to, you know, how, how else can I enrich my career and my, my life um, in terms of volunteering and other things that I'm just starting to get more, more involved in, just starting to crack the book on that. That's, that's very interesting. That um... Yeah. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I, I think that's definitely true. You know, once you're the person um, making all the decisions about, you know, how much money do I need to make this year? How much yes. do I have to spend? Um, how much time do I have to devote to this practice? You really can free up your your time to do other things that yeah. to you as well. Yeah, it, it's more profitable in some ways, and it and it frees frees me up in that way. And obviously, client needs are the absolute number one. But otherwise, outside of that. You know, it's very rare that a client absolutely has to have something, you know, at a particular time that's inflexible, especially in the kind of work that I do. And so other than that, I'm the master of my own time, which I really like. I think, uh, you know, having that that freedom is another one of those elements of being happy. Right? Yeah, absolutely. 
autonomy. Of, yeah. Uh, so uh, you made that decision to leave, uh, to start your practice just recently, um, yes. sort of as we're coming out of the pandemic. Has the, do you think the pandemic itself shaped that decision in any way or had any? Yeah, it actually, it? it did. I definitely sort of reframed what level of happiness I could have working more independently because I did do it for so long during the pandemic. Uh, but also it sort of boosted my ability to do the kind of work that I'm doing now, which is principally workplace investigations, because it went from, and we can talk, you know, talk more about what it, what it involves, but it, it previously had been all in-person work. Um, and now the, the, the standard is well accepted that we might have meetings um, remotely and that could be, you know, um, meetings in different cities across the country on the same day. And it does, so instead of being out of, you know, out of commission for an entire day for a particular matter, I can work on more than one investigation at a time now. Um, I just have to, you know, I obviously have to, to get my, keep everything straight and I do. Um, but I, I can have more than one investigation on my desk because I can be anywhere and meet with people, um, across the country all during the day at times that are convenient to them now, instead of me just like setting up a schedule in somebody's conference room and, and trying to fit everybody in. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what yeah. it, it is to be a workplace investigator? Like, what, what kind of investigations are you doing? You know, are you wearing a trench coat? Like, what is it? <laughs> I'll tell you what I know. I'll try and do the the, the field justice because it's, it's a pretty interesting area of work. And sometimes it's an area of law and sometimes it's not. But basically, I, I am, and I consider it employment law adjacent. Um, I am asked by an employer or an employer's counsel, is, is often more common, um, to come in to, to assess something that has come up. That's typically it's an employee complaint about another employee or, you know, employee complaint about a manager, for instance. And so that's the typical framework is that some, some complaint has arisen. And it could be any number of things. A very common scenario would be an allegation of sexual harassment or an allegation of discrimination and promotion, that kind of thing, or some combination of these, these things um, and a claim of retaliation that once I complained to my manager, then I was no longer getting these, you know, I was no longer included on these sales calls or, so, you know, something like that. So the need for an investigator, um, it, there are various reasons why an investigator might be helpful or, you know, or, or necessary. And a, a typical scenario would be that either that the, the situation is extremely, extremely sensitive, ex, extremely expo explosive, you know, where they feel like they, they just need somebody with some expertise to come in and speak with people who will be sensitive, who will have good judgment, who will be independent, that kind of thing. But at another common time this will arise is when the person who either would be conducting the investigation otherwise, like a human resources person, or to whom a, a report of this nature would be typically be you know, delivered like a senior leadership, a CEO, a board of directors, um, those kinds of people when they're named in, in, in action. So, you know, it's a conflict for the investigation to be conducted internally. And there might be a conflict if with, you know, how this, some, how this is going to be reported out. So bringing in a third party uh, is beneficial because you can sort of eliminate some of that conflict and bring a level of expertise and ultimately, you know, an employer is looking to have something that they can rely upon that's good information, um, but also shows that they cared and were willing to listen to multiple points of view. And they wanted, you know, somebody who had a complaint to be adequately heard. So that's part of that's what my role is 
in conducting the investigation. And it's very important to bring good judgment, uh, thoroughness, and open-mindedness to the process and not strictly be looking at this as like, you know, like an employment lawyer hat, but I'm not the employer's counsel. That's, I'm expressly not that. That's why, you know, my best source of referrals is other employment lawyers because they want to re- retain that confidential attorney-client relationship and they do not want to be the one on the stand. Oh, interesting. So are you called upon to testify in your role? Yeah, I mean, that's ultimately the, the expectation for any engagement that I might be called upon to testify and I have testified in the past. So, Which is eye-opening once you've, you know, once you've spent a lot of your career preparing witnesses for, for de- you know, for deposition or for trial. It's a, quite a role reversal to be that person. It's very interesting because, uh, you know, it seems a little bit different than the securities law type investigations that we often do yeah. where you're called upon to do the investigation, but you're called upon as the attorney to do the investigation and to protect the privilege yeah. um, of the company. So that's an interesting difference. Yeah. I consider any of my investigations as potentially subject to privilege and that I would treat with the same level of confidentiality as, as an investigation like that, but also know that one of the defenses, for instance, in a claim of discrimination or harassment or retaliation is um, prompt remedial action taken by the employer. And so an employer may, it may be an employer's interest to expose, here, is what our, well, here are all the steps that we took mm-hmm. and here's everything that Amy saw and here's everything that Amy considered and here's the output. And this is why we relied on it. And we thought it was reasonable to do so. So, you know, it, it's, it is something that's potentially for which the, the client might potentially want to waive a privilege. That's very interesting. Oh, how did you first get involved in that type of work? Uh, it was a natural outgrowth of employment law work. So, you know, when we would have be representing an employer on, I don't know how many countless occasions I would, I would be essentially conducting an investigation when a complaint would come in, like a, a, a charge with the state agency or the EEOC. Uh, so I would be doing a lot of the same steps, but through an advocate's lens. Um, so I'd be speaking with, to the extent that it was feasible, often not, I'd be speaking with the person who complained, um, but also, you know, the manager involved and the other people witnessed it and sort of following the same process. So that was something that I developed in, as an employment law skill and, you know, drew upon some of my background and my interest in journalism and the the kind of work that I described before, where you're sort of um, vetting every fact that mm-hmm. you uh, receive and, and make sure that it's it's true um, when you write it down. So it was it was it was a natural outgrowth of every, all of my interests, which include writing and um, this this sort of detailed approach to fact finding. Like the journalism skills. Yeah, absolutely. Right. The interview skills, you know, and, and deposition, that kind of thing. It seems very interesting. Um, and how do you go about, uh, sort of, you mentioned um, a moment ago that your some of your best resources are other employment lawyers. So how yes. do you go about um, sort of networking that and also um, making it clear that you are not a sort of competitive threat? Yeah, yeah. It is a, it is a relationship business. Um, it is something that, you know, when somebody is looking for a workplace investigator, they have to find somebody with good judgment and somebody who that they who they trust. Um, and that doesn't mean that they trust that they're going to get a particular outcome. And if they did, that would make them a horrible workplace investigator, you know, but trust that they will they will give something a fair shake. And so I uh, began getting my name became sort of spreading out within some some large um employment law firms. And so it was not just, you know, the Boston office, but, you know, it was, it was other branches of 
that national law firm's offices and, and up, you know, in multiple law firms in that in that category. And so it, you really live and die by the quality of your work because it is a it is referrals. It's internal referrals within law firms um, or, you know, that uh, a, a client will ask their lawyer for a name and the, the lawyer will ask their, you know, around at their firm and get multiple names. And you, you may be one of multiple. So what is your what is your history? And have you proven to have good judgment and produce quality work? product thoroughly, efficiently, you know, and with good principles and best practices in mind. Um, is there a time frame for how long these investigations tend to take, or is it really dependent on, on the facts and circumstances of each one? Um, it's, it's more the latter. I would say that almost never is it a case that it's like a matter of days, although there's exceptions to the rule. So if it's really, did somebody, you know, commit this one physical act you know, and I talked with every, I can talk with everybody involved. I can have a, a, an oral finding for the company within a day or two. Um, and now things are more flexible where it used to be required travel and things like that. Like it can be more efficient. Um, and I can slot in, you know, where a CFO is traveling, but they can, they can meet with me by, by Zoom. You know, I can now fit in things that were impractical before to do, to be more efficient. But you're ultimately working around people's schedules and it may be that they want, you know, me to do something, but they want to wait until this board meeting, uh, you know, in three weeks. So can you stop and go? And that's part of why it seems, it, you know, having being able to do things remotely has worked out well because I can't just drop everything, you know, um, if, I, if it was a matter of being, you know, being on hand and physically present. Um, but, um, you know, I am I am to some extent following the, the client's pace. It's always important to, to address things as efficiently as possible while, while not sacrificing any quality of the work. Uh, and, you know, there are, will be a case where somebody is being held out of the workplace until there is a finding about whether they did X, mm -hmm. Y, and Z. And I, you know, that has to be given a certain level of urgency because you can't hold people indefinitely um, out of work. Yeah. It's like their livelihood, right? And yeah, they probably, are they usually paid during that time? It depends uh, on the employer's approach, but larger employers sometimes have more resources to do that. And some, some employers will put somebody off pending results. And if the person's reinstated with no issue, they're compensated in some, you know, and if, if they're let go, then, then it's, you know, there's, there's no compensation. Ultimately, when I'm acting as a workplace investigator, I usually don't, I would have nothing to do with that. That would be, I would leave that to my employment, employment law colleagues, um, and you would ask, you know, um, how do I, you know, sort of keep the, the trust with, for referrals? And I, I'm certainly well aware of what my role is um, and that it's strictly to be a fact finder when I'm engaged to do something like this. There, there can be times when I'm asked by the lawyer or less common, but if, a, if just a client retains me directly, they might say, can you do an investigation and can you give us some recommendations that would involve legal advice? But that those circumstances are really well defined because I want to be clear what my role is. And most of the time I'm strictly engaged to be a fact finder. And um, it's not in my interest to undermine, to, you know, to, to, to overstep um, and to undermine a, you know, the employment lawyer, the existing employment lawyer's role. And um, so I, I'm pretty clear about what my role is. And I think that that is something also that, that other lawyers respect. Do you sometimes are hired just as employment lawyer? Also? Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. And that's, that's sort of where I started, where I grew from. 
And is that usually on the employer side or do you also represent? It is. It's typically on the employer side. Um, and I now would you know do much less in the way of litigation. It's more in the, in the way of advice uh, on typical workplace problems or issues that just simply need to be navigated. An employer just wants to know what is the right thing to do. I've got, a, I've got this person that's on a leave of absence. I don't even know what their status is. They just haven't been at work. And we have to sort out what are they entitled to by law? What, you know, does the employer go further in its policies? And let's make sure that, it, that the employee is getting that. And have you found um, sort of instances of harassment or discrimination going up now that people are back in more back in the office? Or what are the trends that you've seen in this area? It's a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, certainly the things that are more um, typical of in-person interactions have, have gone down. I used to joke that uh, every January I should just set aside a little bit of time for the investigation that inevitably comes out of Christmas parties <laughs> gone wrong. Um, and there's certainly less of that. Um, there is still, you know, there's still plenty of other concerns about harassment, retaliation, discrimination going around. So I would not say that the, that that. Uh, the hybrid or virtual life has eliminated it all. That's interesting outgrowth. We we noticed last summer as New York City started opening up more, a little mm -hmm. bit of an influx of, of some more of the sort of sexual harassment type um, yeah. matters coming back. Yeah, it's sort of, you often have to be in the same room for it to be an issue, but not always. Exactly. <laughs> Well, I think people also, you know, they've been cooped up for so long and they forget how to interact. Uh, That's in right. The place a little bit. Yeah. So, Just like all the teachers are seeing in the classrooms, right? Oh. <laughs> yes. That's a whole other issue. <laughs> That's another podcast. <laughs> so are you a member of any sort of uh, bar associations or employment law groups or, or other ways of staying in touch with employment lawyers? Uh you know, locally, or how does that really work? Yeah, it's this is something that I'm looking to develop even further. Um, but I'm, you know, there's a really well established um, HR organization, SHRM, um, Society of Human Resources Professionals, and I'm getting more involved with them. Um, and look, really looking forward to sort of digging in a little bit more and seeing myself again, outside of, you know, the role of just sort of working in, the, in, in, in a law firm, but instead being a member of the legal community. So that's something I'm, I'm looking to, it's great personally, as far as being enriching, it's also great as far as networking is concerned. Yeah, I mean, you said it before, and it's definitely, I think, correct that our business is, relation, is about relationships. And so yeah, the more relationships absolutely. you make, the better your business is going to be and the more enjoyable, actually, yeah. the practice of law is. Absolutely. You also have a life outside of work. You mentioned yes. a couple of kids. Um, I do. And, and how old are they now? Uh, I've got a 16-year-old who's in driver's ed and a 13-year-old who's about to get his braces on. So we're in it. We're in the You're teen in years. In the thick of yeah, it. Absolutely. My oldest is 14, so I'm right there with you. And she still yeah, has absolutely. braces on. And then I yes. have a 12-year-old and a 7-year-old. So oh, <laughs> I'm going to be in it for a while. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, how do you – we all have these challenges, right? We all have yeah. to balance. How do you find that you, you know, balance it? best like how what are your senior do you need tricks or tips or anything about how to keep keep all the trains running on schedule well i think anybody you ask says i'm not sure that i do <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure that i do but we're all like if we're all out of the house in clean clothes like it's a it's a win for us um but no i mean i think a lot of it is not sweating the small stuff when you can um not assuming that if i'm not doing it it's not that, that like you know like that i have to be 
the one doing things for every for my kids or it won't be done right you, you gotta you've got to give up some control um and know that there are benefits associated with getting them to do more things on their own and take more responsibility for themselves like i think as a working mom i my tendency is to want to make up for the fact of working by doing more for for them and i look at my sibling who is an educator married to an educator and they are very successful in you know, teaching their kids, like, and not underestimating what, a, what your kids can do and getting them to do it and be more independent at a younger age. And I think there's value to that and, and value to them seeing that you are working and that it's important and that you're contributing and it's helping provide for, for their life. Um, and just sort of setting a role model for them, being a, being a role model for them and doing that in some ways unapologetically as well. I love that. That, that I subscribe to that entirely. I think I'm yeah. definitely guilty as well of, you know, yeah feeling like you need to make the extra pancakes on the weekends or oh for sure right know, whatever you can do to try to make up for the fact yeah. that you're not always there <laughs> yeah absolutely so uh we're down to our last three questions these are excellent meant to be a little bit rapid fire they all right turn out that way noted i'm not sure <laughs> that they were written correctly for that purpose but <laughs> do it a try so if you couldn't be an attorney what career would you choose well, you probably could guess. I, I would be a writer for sure. I would love um, to write. I would love to blend it. Like I'd love to write on the court system or, you know, something that's something that's nonfiction. And, and I would love that or, or editing as well. Do you ever try to carve out time for that now? I know that it's hard. More so now. I'm trying to I'm trying to do it more now. Yeah. But it re requires a level of sort of like creative, you know, thought and freedom that is not necessarily conducive to like fitting it in. I know, I know that great writers just get up every morning, and just do it. Like, like the people go to the gym. Yeah. Um, and that's probably something that I need to get more in touch with. Be intentional, right? Not that, yeah. that's the word that yeah. you use. That's right. <laughs> um, okay. Second one, what is the one thing you wish you knew when you graduated law school that you know now? That is hard. And well, this, this might be obvious to some people, but I think so this, this advice is not for them when it, this is obvious, but I think for a lot of people, when you come out of law school, you have, you, you know, a lot about the law, but you know, almost nothing, unless you've had some amazing clinical experience, you, you know, almost nothing about the actual practice of law and it's can be overwhelming and you feel like everybody knows everything and everybody knows more than you. And that can be, you know, incredibly overwhelming. And I think that it, the mistake you can make is to assume that just because you haven't done something, you can't do something. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think that, you know, if you just push yourself, um, you, you build on the skills that you have, you trust in your ability, you can go extremely far and go further than you would have expected. So, um, you know, just because you haven't done it doesn't mean you can't, you're just, yeah. there's always a first time for everything. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you all have to you have to do your first argument. You have to do you your first some. Argument. You got to start somewhere. Start somewhere. <laughs> yep. I love it. And last question: Would you recommend a law career to um, women considering law school today? I would. I would. I, I think that it is a, an incredibly rich field that can be almost any kind of job. Um, and so, you know, I grew up with a father who was not a courtroom lawyer and I knew that there was such, you know, he did regulatory work and I knew that there were, you know, so it was a very distinguished and important office job that was, you know, had, had better hours than some other types of work. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it all depends on what you are looking for, for some people who don't want to have kids or aren't going to be the primary 
you know, breadwinner, it's even less relevant, like sort of what the, some of the demands would be. So our primary caregiver, I should say, uh, it's, it's sort of irrelevant what the, what the day-to-day demands would be. Um, and maybe they have the same considerations as men in the field. I don't know. Um, but I do know that as somebody who's chosen to have kids and to, to be pretty heavily involved in raising them, um, there are ways it may not be, you know, working straight out, flat out at a at big law, but that, that doesn't mean that big law isn't good for you at some point and can't, you know, give you give you a stepping stone to other things. I think I subscribe to all of that. I think yeah, absolutely true. And I mean, I think uh, what I learned in big law has carried me and made me a better lawyer than I would have yeah, been for sure. experience. Um, but I'm glad that I didn't stay in big law while my kids were, you know, young and growing yeah. up because I think it was really um, allowed me out of big law to have the flexibility to really appreciate uh, that time, which is a special time. And as we've yeah. talked about before, it's a transition, right? It's there's transitions in life and being able to be change your career to max match your life is really a great benefit of having a law degree. Yeah, absolutely. So, Amy, what's the name of your law firm? It's, uh, it's Sereno Law LLC. Great. And that's where everyone can find you. And you're in Andover, Massachusetts. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. That's, that's in the right. greater Boston area. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And thank uh, you so much. Talk Roseanne. to you soon on the other side. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Success in Brief with your host, Roseanne Felicello. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and sharing the show with others. You can catch prior episodes at www.fellacellolaw.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and more.